0: We're just going to look at two verses this evening. Verse number eleven and verse number twelve of, excuse me. Did I say second Peter? I meant first Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Verse eleven and verse twelve. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord As we have already heard, Lord, of uh, requests that's been lifted up before you, we bring all those to you with a heavy heart, but with with a comforted heart because we understand that we serve a God who answers prayers. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us this evening, be with those kids that are here from this neighborhood, Lord. I know even before the service, one was telling me of, his troubles of being disciplined and possibly expelled from school. Lord, we understand that all of these things are at the heart um, and absence of you. Lord, I pray that you'll work in this young man's heart, that he'll hear the gospel, that you'll save his soul, Lord. And we will be able to stand and testify and witness about how you have done again, a mighty work in a young man and, changed him. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that is easy for us to pick out in our society as we're walking about is foreigners. It's easy to see a foreigner. They don't even have to speak. If their speech doesn't betray them, then the way they dress betrays them. If they're dress doesn't betray them, then the way they look betrays them. All of these things are clear indicators that they are not from the place, that they're not from the area in which we are from. Peter here addresses the recipients of these letters, uh, the recipients of these epistles as strangers and pilgrims. It is to say that this letter is written to a group of people who are not fitting in in today's society. It is written to a group of people who, in the nation in which they exist, are societal misfits. They, they're easy to pick out. They're easy to see that they are not like the rest of the world. When Peter writes to them, he, he says, Dearly beloved. Now this doesn't set out on the onset the clearly, you know, to to put forth Peter's love for these people, though Peter does love them. But in the starting of this sentence, when Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, it is to say that these words that he It actually implies a a, a sense of accountability to the reader or to to the hearer. When he says dearly beloved, it is to remind the hearer, it is to remind the reader of God's great love that he has for them. It is to say, you dearly beloved, you, you know who you are. The ones who God loved, the ones who the Lord saved, the ones who the Lord called out of darkness into marvelous light. It it brings a sense of of accountability to the reader to whom he knows this applies. Dearly beloved. It uh, It is to remind them that they are the object of God's immeasurable love. That's us. Those who are gathered here this evening who profess to be saved. We are the object of God's love. Dearly beloved. As he moves on, he will clarify here in these two verses that as the object of God's love, since we are the object of God's love, we have a duty as the recipient of God's love to manifest his love, and that we manifest this in the manner in which we live our lives. Here he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you. Now, understand this is a present situation that implies an intense begging. He says, I beseech you, this is to beg, this is to entreat, this is to console, this is to encourage, to strengthen, to exhort, really to exhaust oneself. Peter is saying, you, the ones who have, experienced God's immeasurable love, I am begging you. to The the picture that's being painted with this word beseech, it, it puts forth the imagery that Peter is down on his hands or down on his knees with his hands gripped together begging the child of God to behave as a child of God. He says, dearly beloved, I beseech you. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This is interesting verbiage that he begs God's people to act like God's people. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. It's not enough to... So to say, um, it's not enough to abstain from sin, but even further, he will, in verse number 12, call us to cling to another. But he says not only should we abstain from it, we ought not to be involved in it, but he also is painting the portrait of here that too many believers are involved in it. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust. This is the great problem that Jeremiah spoke of in the book of Lamentations. There in the book of Lamentations, I believe it is in the fourth chapter or the the fifth chapter, he says there in that text that these people, God's people, they were brought up in scarlet, but they embraced the dunghills. They were brought up understanding the beauty of what they have in God. They they were brought up understanding who God was to them. But even though they had that understanding, even though they knew that God was their deliverer, they embraced the dunghill. It is to say that they defiled their garments. This is the same thing that Peter is emphasizing to us even in this year, in this generation of 2023, amongst the children of God who exist today, that there are too many Christians, though that we are saved, we have defiled our garments by not abstaining from fleshly lust. Now, we understand that at salvation, we are We're not made perfect, you know, we're we're not made sinless. We begin this path of sanctification until one day we reach glorification in which we will finally be like him. But in verse number 11, it speaks of a continual warfare. Even though you are regenerated at salvation, I don't know about you, when I was saved, the day the Lord saved me, I had new desires in my heart. I had new things that I wanted to do. I I wanted to pray. I never wanted to pray before. When the Lord saved me, when I became regenerated, I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to know more about my Savior. I, I wanted to know more. But it was not long until I learned that even though this inner man was regenerated, even though this inner man was made new, even though this inner man had this desire I was brought to the reality that this inner man is incarcerated in this outward man. That this man who I am inside is in captivity inside of this flesh. But yet it goes on to say that these new desires are now at war with my flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin. This is the implication, the understanding. Once once you are saved, understand... You sin because you choose to, period. That's the only reason we sin once we're saved. But this pleading in verse number 11, Peter is pleading on behalf of Christ, really, and to the believers. But notice also he says here, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. It is not to paint the imagery here when he says, which war against the soul. As strangers and pilgrims, it brings us to the understandings that we will continue in this war as strangers and pilgrims. And when does war stop as strangers and pilgrims? When you finally make it to your home country. It is to paint for us the thought process that What Peter is saying here is not like what America did when they fought World War I or when they fought World War II and when they fought Vietnam and so on and so forth, that we fought a war for this short window and once the war was over, everybody came home. Peter is painting this thought process for us that this is a war that will continue until we get home. This is a war that will continue until we get to our home country. But even more, notice what Peter has identified as the problem. He not only says that we're at war, but what brings war to the soul, what brings war to the regenerated man is this fleshly lust. These are the acts that Peter says wars against the believer's soul. These are things that even though we're saved now, because the new man is incarcerated in the old man, we still are fighting to abstain from these fleshly lusts. Now, Paul would go on when he's talking to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, in verses 19 through 21, he had identified these things as that which pertains to the flesh, but wars with the soul. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emalutations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, And such like of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It is to say that though the soul has been regenerated, though we've been delivered from the power of sin, The reality is is that this wicked flesh still has a desire for uncleanness. It, It has a desire. I mean, you know, if you're driving in rush hour or if you've experienced it and maybe you're not like this, you're a completely peaceful person, but living in the age in which we live, it doesn't take much for somebody to say something about us or do something to us, and we're looking for wrath against them. We, we, Though we don't do it, we fantasize if it happened to them. It's the reality of the flesh. The thing that stirs up in us is that in the, in that exact moment, we have stirred up in our hearts that if something like that Happen to them, well, that would be far better than the Lord dealing with it later. Even more, you know, when we think about this old flesh, as Paul points out to the Galatians, how easy it is for a child of God to get caught up in envy. We look at this brother or that brother or this sister or that sister, and before you know it, we're envying them, and even worse, we set aside, we're envying other Christians, we're envying the world. These are the things that Peter is saying that is at a constant, matter of fact, that word war um, in the Greek, if, is it's, it presents a campaign. Now you understand when People campaign to be president. It is a continual thing, an ongoing event. They're continuing to set out signs. They're continuing to find promoters. They're continuing to find people to speak on their behalf until they have victory. That word war is the same word. It is to say that the fleshly lusts are on a campaign against our souls. They, they will do everything they can. If this doesn't work, they'll do this. They'll find somebody else to sp- of the world to speak on their behalf. They'll try to find you, this before you or that before you. And that is how it goes. Peter says, these are the things that are on a campaign against your soul. But he he, he cries out for the believer. He says, abstain. To abstain against or abstain from the fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Even more, he goes on to say, the Lord commands us here, we understand this in 1 John, that this is the reality for the believer. He tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we are called to abstain. But how do we abstain? I mean, this is really easy to say abstain. Oftentimes, we're good at telling people not to do something, but we don't do so well telling them how not to do it, how not to find yourself here. Peter tells them to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Well, when Paul was talking to the Galatians that we just read, by the time you make it down there to the 16th verse in the 5th chapter, he tells them the way that you abstain from fleshly lust is to walk in the Spirit. Now, understand what this means here. Understand what's being implied here is that if the answer to abstaining from fleshly lust is to walk in the Spirit, it brings us to the reality that the battle that we're facing will either be won or lost within. That's where the battle is. It isn't because someone told you to do it, someone convinced you to do it. It's because you chose to do it. James chapter 1 and verse 13 and 15 said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. But Peter doesn't leave it there. It's not enough as a child of God to not be involved in sin. You can abstain from sin and do good. And that's not to say that just abstaining from sin is bad, but Peter here between verse 11 and 12 says, not only must you abstain, but you must cling to another. It is a forsaking one and clinging to another. He said, while we abstain from fleshly lust, this is what we should cling to. Verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that, May by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a really in this first sentence before you get to that semicolon. It is a depressing statement. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Let me say this, what Peter is implying here. Peter's implying that these believers don't have a problem being honest amongst each other about who God is to them. They don't have a problem amongst each other sharing about the blessings that they have experienced in their life that God has Done for them and about how God has saved them. It's not a problem. Peter says the problem is with believers, you are failing to be honest in the world. You're failing to be honest around having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Too many times we're out in the world and we hear the world get the talking or we hear Unbelievers get to talking to us instead of putting ourselves in an awkward situation. We hide that we're foreigners and strangers. We hide that the things they're speaking of is at war against our soul. We hide the reality that we are not interested in these things. Our conversation is honest on Sundays and Wednesdays and Tuesdays or when we're amongst our church family. But Peter says these believers, as believers, you've got to not only abstain from the fleshly lust, but you have to get to the place where you're honest amongst the world about what God has done for you having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers the world is not changed in the day that Peter wrote this he expected that if people of God will live like people of God that the world is going to speak evil of you that's what has always been they've called good evil and evil good it is this is the normal behavior of the world when you stand for God This is what they did to Daniel, is it not? Daniel stood. He nurtured his relationship with the Lord. He continued to pray. He didn't allow anything or anyone, no matter what the law or rule was, to disrupt his fellowship with the Lord. And this was good, and they called it evil. And then Daniel's in the lion's den. This is the same thing they did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to bow before the, the... Well, yeah, and uh, before the uh, statue, they they refused to bow. And before what happened then? Then they ended up before Nebuchadnezzar, and they still went, and then they ended up in the fiery furnace. Listen, it is an ongoing thing that has been since the beginning of time all the way back to Cain and Abel. This is nothing new. When you stand for God and you live for God, and when you do that which God has required of you, whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers. This is what the world does. But Peter says there's a benefit that if you will just do what you're supposed to do, though the world may look down upon you, Peter here in verse 12 implies that the entire world may not be looking down upon you. Look what he says. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's desire and Peter's statement here is that our behavior may be such an example that in the day of the Lord's visitation that we will set such an exceptional life on display of living for the Lord that it will cause others to believe. Some may call your good works evil. Some may say you're involved in a cult. Ninety nine point nine percent may frown upon you and look down upon you. But Peter makes clear in verse number 12 that there is a reality that others are watching and that if we will just live in the way in which we're supposed to in the day of visitation, in the day in which the Lord visits them, he can use our very lives to bring them to a place of salvation to a place of understanding. Uh, The apostle used this expression here to show that because of the observation of Christian virtue and good works in the lives of believers, some would be privileged to glorify God when he visited them with salvation. The gospel message can actually be on full display in our lives at times, even without words. A 20th a story here from the 20th century. An example, so to say, about how godly and committing yourself to live godly in uncertain times can yield great results. It was said that during the time of World War II that there was a bunch of unbelievers and believers who were took prisoner, uh, prisoners of war in a war camp in the Philippines. When they were taken captive, amongst those captives was a family of American missionaries, Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son. They were prisoners there for about three years in the Japanese war camp. Herb's diary told of his family's captors, who, how they tortured, murdered, and starved to death many of the camp's inmates. The prisoners particularly hated and feared the camp commander, whose name was Kenoshi. Herb described one especially diabolical plan in which Kenoshi had decided to take out many of the people there by giving them the rice that hadn't had the, um, the it was unhusked rice. And if you understand this, to eat unhusked rice, it's like razor blades inside of your stomach. If they would have ate this rice, it would have killed them. And then to unhusk the rice would have taken, according to Herb, it would have taken more strength to unhusk the rice than the calories that they would have received from the rice. Even more when Kenoshi, seeing that they didn't fall prey to his diabolical plan, he began to beat them and beat them all the more. And then eventually, at the end of it all, he, around February of 1945, when Kenosha told them that on the next day that he was going to come and kill off the camp before the Allied troops could get there, in February of 1945, through God's providential plan, troops arrived and freed them. Kenoshi would escape, unable to commit himself to a plan of Mass murder, but years later the Klingens learned that Kenoshi had been found working as a groundskeeper in a golf course in Manila. When they located him, when the meaning when the government located him, they convicted him of war crimes and sentenced him to be hung. Prior to being hung, they asked if he had anything that he would like to say. And out of all the things he said, he ended his statement with this, that he had given his life to Jesus Christ because of the time where he was in this camp as the commander. He seen the life of Herb Klingon and heard the gospel message that he preached to all of those people who were in the concentration camp. And that gospel message would end up saving his life. Herb was consistent throughout all of the troubles and turmoils. He, he stayed committed to Christ. And all those years later, even though Kenoshi was going to be facing execution, he felt great comfort and confidence in the saving power of Jesus Christ because one man, one wife, and a child did not waver in their confidence in who their Lord and Savior was. And this is the reality of the life that we would live if we would just abstain. If we would just war against these fleshly lusts. It's not easy. It didn't say it was easy at all. But understand that committing to doing those things and staying away from those things, it is all within. It is the war within each and every day we will have to decide whether or not we are going to walk in the Spirit, whether we're going to walk trusting the Lord, whether we're going to walk in confidence knowing that it is His desire for us to be a light to this community. And at the end of it all, not knowing who is watching us on the sidelines and observing our lives to see are we going to be consistent in all times are we going to be faithful in all times and then the thing is that makes it so beautiful herb said in his journal that he didn't even know that this man kenoshi had come to faith in jesus christ because they were separated they never even knew matter of fact many of you guys can probably remember this um Brother, who is the man who just got his toes amputated? I, I can't get his name out of my... Head. Brother Scott Guiley. Brother Scott Guiley came here and preached for us several months ago. It was last year, I believe, or maybe earlier this year. And lo and behold, on the Internet, a guy was trying to search for Scott Guiley. And because we put him on the Internet, on Facebook, preaching... He contacted our church here trying to get a hold of Scott Guiley because he wanted to tell Scott Guiley that all those years that they worked in northern Ohio together in the factory, that all of those days at lunchtime where Scott Guiley preached the gospel to him didn't go to waste and that the Lord would end up saving him. But they never never knew 25 years, 30 years had passed. And Brother Giley had never knew that the Lord saved him. You do not know, none of us know, the impact of how we behave, how we utilize our time as we encounter the world. And I believe just to know two so quickly is only to say that there are so many more people who are watching, who are in desperate need, if we will just be wise, wise, like we need wisdom, like Daniel needs wisdom. His knee hurts because he's old. He shouldn't be playing basketball. He needs wisdom. And we need the same kind of wisdom when it comes to conducting ourselves as Christians. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done, Lord. And Lord, I know that, so many of us are under the weather, um, feeling the effects of this colds and flus and so on and so forth that's going on, Lord. But I do thank you for the strength to even get here this evening for the little reprieve so that I could just to get in your word and study this evening with, the, with your people. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen us, Lord, be with the Johnsons as they travel here. Looking forward to seeing them with us on Friday. Lord, looking forward to services on Sunday. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.